Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Family recipes are a way to connect generations. But what happens when you've got grandma's recipe and it doesn't have exact measurements? People are like, no, it doesn't taste that good. I was like, no, something's not right. Like, I got to get this right. We also talk with Ohio Poet Laureate Carrie Gunter Seymour about Appalachia, homes, and getting published. We stray from the healing and the therapy of poetry when we're trying to write something that that an editor might like. That said, (laughs) the first time you get published, I don't think there's anything like it. And we revisit a story about an attraction at the confluence of the New and Gali Rivers and the man who put it there. 1954 is when he put it up here. Figure over 50 years old, you know, 50 years on that rock. It's older than me, you know. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Old family recipes are shared and passed down throughout Appalachia. Sometimes they come on fingerprint smudged, handwritten note cards stuffed in wooden boxes. Others show up in loose leaf cookbooks. These family heirlooms can be a way to connect with the past. But not all of these hand-me-down recipes use exact measurements. So how do you know you're getting it right? For Brenda Sandoval in Harpers Ferry, West Virginia, it involves some trial and error and an assist from a cousin. Capri Cafaro has more. Brenda Sandoval has been making her grandmother's potato candy recipe for years. Today, she's peeling just one potato to make her next batch. This is going to be a little batch today. Brenda is a striking woman with long treadlocks and intricate tattoos adorning her arms. She tells me about the day she discovered her grandmother's potato candy recipe. I came across the recipe and some recipe books my aunt had given me that were my grandmother's that she had been holding on to. I found this recipe. It was her handwriting on a piece of paper, and it was P period candy. So the two P ingredients were the potato and the peanut butter and the confectionate sugar, but she had a side note of things that she added, which were salt, milk, and vanilla. Like many handwritten recipes, Brenda's family potato candy recipe did not use units like cups or teaspoons. The dash was the vanilla, the pinch was the salt, And the milk was labeled as, I want to say it was four splashes, is how she had it. Brenda was intrigued. She wanted to see if she could recreate the recipe. Of course, the first couple of times I'm making it, I'm just literally with the milk jug, just like splashing it over it, and it, it didn't work. But Brenda had never eaten her grandmother's potato candy, so she wasn't sure what it was supposed to taste like. Family members who tried those early batches said it didn't taste quite right. Something was missing. It just did not. People are like, no, it doesn't taste that good. I was like, no, something's not right. Like, I got to get this right. So Brenda set out on a mission to make her grandmother's potato candy recipe taste like the real deal. And getting it right wasn't easy. Okay. Brenda was chasing a taste memory. Eventually, she enlisted a family member in the pursuit. As you're tasting it, you're trying to match it to what, like, grandma's was back when you were little and everyone goes over to grandma's on Christmas Eve. That's Valerie Bovey. She's Brenda's cousin. And unlike Brenda, Valerie actually tasted her grandmother's potato candy. She remembers how it tasted when she ate it on Christmas Eve. That's the flavor you got to try to find, <laughs> which is hard to explain exactly what that flavor is, but it's, it's definitely that grandma's house Christmas Eve flavor. <laughs> Brenda and Valerie worked together closely, Valerie tasting each batch and Brenda adjusting the ingredients based on Valerie's feedback. She trusts me that I know what it should taste like, and like I let her know when it is good, and she's just like really happy that, you know, she's accomplished that same taste. Their collaboration worked. Brenda's determination and Valerie's taste memory led to a breakthrough. She was like, "No, this, this is right. Whatever you did, keep doing this." Potato candy is a food icon across Appalachia. It became popular during the Great Depression because it was cheap and easy to make. This sugary sweet confection is usually composed of just three inexpensive ingredients, peanut butter, powdered sugar, and of course, potatoes. 
The candy looks like a reverse pumpkin log with a brown swirl of peanut butter wrapped in the white pasty potato mix. When it's sliced, some people say the pieces look like pinwheels. So when you're starting your potato candy mix, it's almost like you're making homemade mashed potatoes. That's actually what we want to do. But as we add the vanilla, the milk, and the salt, and a little bit of the sugar, we're going to get a real, it almost looks like syrup. I'm assuming it's the, the Over the years, Brenda has mastered the potato candy recipe. I have a... Is a four-pound bag? Back in the kitchen, she's assembling her ingredients to be mixed. She adds the splash of milk, dash of vanilla, and pinch of salt to the mashed potatoes, and lots and lots of powdered sugar. As I watch the mixture turn into paste, I ask Brenda about the reaction she gets when people eat her potato candy. Most people, the first thing they say is, I remember eating it when my grandmother or my great-grandmother or my aunt, it was always a family member making it, and they could uh, remember the taste. Brenda thinks her potato candy has something special that sets it apart. I think it's the little side note of my grandmother's that makes the difference. That's the side note to add the dash of vanilla, pinch of salt, and the splashes of milk. And it's not just the extra ingredients that make her potato candy different. She brings something more to the process. I like to take my time and think about my grandmother or my ancestors as I'm baking it. And I think maybe that's, it's coming from the heart. It's just very emotional sometimes. It's clear the potato candy is more than just a sweet treat to Brenda. It's about sustaining tradition and holding on to family memories. I want it to go to someone, at least even if they don't make it, just have the recipe. Just pass the recipe down. Like maybe further down, generations down, someone will want to make it. Brenda's cousin Valerie is doing her part to keep their family's potato candy tradition going. She wants to keep those taste memories alive for future generations. Because my kids are such fans of it. I want to make sure that I get the recipe down pat so that I can make it with my kids and my now grandchildren. And I just want us to be able to all get together, have good family memories, have fun making it together, and enjoying it together. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Capri Cafaro. That story is part of our Folkways reporting project, which covers arts and culture in the region. To see photos from Capri's story or to listen to our other Folkways stories, visit our website, wvpublic.org. Carrie Gunter Seymour is Ohio's third poet laureate since the state created the position in 2016. She's an earnest cheerleader for Appalachian, Ohio, which, as she points out, represents about a third of the state. Gunter Seymour is the author of several poetry collections. She's the editor of I Thought I Heard a Cardinal Sing, which showcases Appalachian writers in Ohio, as well as eight volumes of Women Speak, an anthology series featuring the work of women writers and artists from across Appalachia. Producer Bill Lynch spoke with Gunter Seymour about poetry, getting published, and the Appalachian part of Ohio. I just want to I just want to preface this with saying you know, a lot of people don't realize that a quarter of the state of Ohio rests in Appalachia proper and that there are pockets of Appalachians scattered throughout the state that are still adamantly connected with their Appalachian roots. We just happen to, you know, our people migrated during the Great Depression and uh, World War II. You know, even though many of us live in northern Appalachia, a good many of us have strong Southern roots as well, mm-hmm. um, but we've we've kind of adapted to Northern ways based on the landscape and the, the growing seasons, you know, what the land provides by way of, um, you know, the quality of the soil and the weather and the Lord mm-hmm. and all those things that are so important, you know, to um, to growing and maintaining. But we all take great pride in our Appalachian a heritage and our people. And I write a lot about my people, but this particular poem is, is about all of that. It's about the land and the people and this false impression that people have of Appalachians that we're all just kind of lazy and uh, don't work hard enough and um, could do so much better. And I think we're doing great. So this is called uh, to no one in particular. 
I'm never happy to see summer go, earth stripped of its finest voice. I'm sitting outside in my heavy coat, porch light off. There is a full-on moon. No ambient distractions. The sky a Zion. I take solace in considering the age of this valley. The way water left its mark on Appalachia long before Peabody sunk a shaft. Chevron augured the shale. Or ODOT dynamited roadways through steep rock. I grew up in a house where canned fruit cocktail was considered a treat. My sister and I fought over who got to eat the fake cherries. Standouts in the can, though tasting exactly like every other tired piece of fruit floating in the heavy syrup. But it was store bought, like city folks. And we were too gullible to understand the corruption in the concept. Our mother's home canned harvests superior in every way. I cringe when I think of how we shamed her. So much here depends upon a green corn stalk, a patched barn roof, weather, the Lord, community. We've rarely been offered a hand that didn't destroy. Inside the house, the light bulb comes on when the refrigerator door is open. My husband rummages a snack, plops beside me on the porch to wolf it down, turns, plants a kiss, leans back in his chair, says to no one in particular. A person could spend a lifetime under a sky such as this. Stands, bows, offers his hand, sings. Buffalo gal, won't you come out tonight? Come out tonight. Come out tonight. Come and dance with a man with a... Hole in a stocking, his knees are a knocking, but his feet keep rocking. Come dance with a man with a hole in a stocking. We'll dance by the light of the moon. Let us dance by the light of the moon. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's my little protest poem. <laughs> Parts that reminded my my childhood right away with the, like with the canned fruit and remembering that with my sisters and and it, yeah we would I think I was more into the pineapple pieces but yeah it, it all did taste the same <laughs> and it was like a big treat and it was just canned yeah that's wonderful poet laureate how did you get to here where you are now I didn't start writing poetry until two thousand and nine. I had begun journaling. I had a, a life-altering circumstance that I was trying to get through. And we talked earlier about the, um, you know, the athletics and getting getting uh, pretty crazy about the workouts. And I, it was all trying to deal with anxiety. And I started journaling and started sharing some of my thoughts with people as I would, you know, try to get out and listen to others who were writing and talking about um, the same kind of situation. And someone said to me, you ought, you ought to try writing poetry because it will make you focus in tightly, you know, because in poetry, you try to look at every single word and find the perfect word, every single word, because you're using a lot less words. So they need to be pretty perfect. And that was life altering for me because it really did. It helped me deal with my chaos. Um, it did help me focus in. It did make me think more clearly about things and less irrationally. And so I felt like it was so therapeutic and so healing. And so then I, I got kind of obsessed with that the way I had about, you know, uh, working out. So between the two of them, the working out and the poetry, I felt like I got my life back into control. Though I will tell you those early poems were pretty horrible. <laughs> but I just kept going and I kept reading other poets and I kept attending um, readings. I did some workshops. 
I certainly don't profess to be one of the best poets on the planet or anything like that. But I do love poetry and I love uh, people and I love helping other people. And so um, I was the poet laureate of Athens County, Athens, Ohio, uh, when the call came out on the state level. And there were several really good, wonderful folks who encouraged me to throw my hat in the ring, so to speak. And they nominated me. And then through the process of the submission process and the interview process, then I I do believe there were three to five of us packaged up, you know, on paper Mm -hmm. and sent to our governor, Governor DeWine. And uh, Governor DeWine made the final choice. Uh, What was it like the first time you were published? Oh, Oh, You know, I tell people, please don't write your work with the idea of getting published, because I think sometimes we stray from the healing and the therapy of poetry when we're trying to write something that that an editor might like and might want to publish. That said, (laughs) the first time you get published, I don't think there's anything like it. It is the most amazing feeling to um, it's a validation of sorts, you know, and you really don't want it to be that way, but it is, it really is. And for me to top it all off, my very first publication was with still the journal, which is to me the finest Appalachian journal on the planet. (laughs) And to have been um, accepted there in the very early days um, of my journey as a poet is just, there's almost not words to explain it. I hope you can hear in my voice how excited I am uh, to occasionally appear in that marvelous, wonderful uh, journal. And the folks there work so hard to lift up new voices and um, and those voices who they feel represent the region. And so, yeah, it was it was something. Carrie, thank you so much. Oh, it was so nice to meet you, Bill. And thank you for inviting me to do this. I'm just so honored and thrilled. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency announced a new rule last week to reduce smog that crosses state lines. West Virginia Public Broadcasting's Curtis Tate has more on how that will affect West Virginia. The EPA issued its final good neighbor rule for nitrogen oxide emissions from power plants and industrial facilities. West Virginia and 22 other states have to cut NOx emissions. The EPA estimates that within three years, the rule could cut 1,300 premature deaths, 2,300 hospital and emergency room visits, 1.3 million asthma cases, and thousands of missed work and school days. Coal-burning power plants often have systems that remove NOx from their emissions. Mon Power's Fort Martin Power Station in Monongalia County does not have the most advanced system, and its future is uncertain under the Good Neighbor rule. Mon Power is evaluating whether to purchase the Pleasance Power Station in Pleasance County. It does have advanced NOx controls. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Curtis Tate in Charleston. With winter starting to slip away, many of us are spending more time outside whether that's biking, fishing, or trail running. A medical Qigong therapist in Pittsburgh is helping people appreciate the outdoor setting in a different way. Most Sherman uses breathing and movement to facilitate healing. He sometimes leads community classes in area parks, which are inspired by another tradition from Asia, forest bathing. A few years ago, the Allegheny Front's Kara Holsapel joined Sherman on a gray morning in Pittsburgh's Frick Park to find out more. Forest bathing started in Japan in the 80s as a form of preventative health care. And the idea is that in order to balance the stress of urban life, we need to expose ourselves to nature. And it's very simple, in fact, to just get yourself into nature and be present. How is it different than taking a walk or hiking? Well, we don't have a destination in mind and we don't rush just like when we take a bath in hot water, we settle in and relax. We can talk, but it's not a time to talk about work like we might do during a walk with a friend or to uh, complain about relationships. It's more a time to go inward. You're looking up. <laughs> yes, when we first bathe, we want to look all around and just take it in. So we breathe in the healing energy 
We also bring it in through our eyes. We bring it in through our ears, hearing the sounds. We bring it in through feeling, whether it's feeling the weather or touching a leaf. In Japan, the term for forest bathing is shinrin-yoku, and that literally means to bring in the forest. Bring it into yourself. Exactly. In the urban environment, we often have to put up what I call energetic shields to protect us. I love cities. I've grown up in a city, live in a city my whole life. But I can feel when I come into the forest, it's a chance for those shields to come down. Even the mud's kind of a soothing sound. <laughs> yes, it is. I was just listening to that as well. Each session is different. There was one uh, session where we did a really fun exercise. We all put our hands on the same tree and we did a guided meditation where we pretended we were squirrels running up the tree. And we got to the top of the tree, looked around, and ran back down. <laughs> and at first I was wondering if anyone was going there with me or if it was just me. But <laughs> I got some good feedback afterwards. So it, was, it was a lot of fun. One of the nice things about forest bathing is it has been widely researched, mostly in Asia and also in Europe. And what brought the most recent attention to the United States is a review that was published in summer of 2017 that looked at 64 of those research studies, which are all based on empirical evidence. And it really impacts so many systems of the body, the cardiovascular system, the respiratory system. And most profoundly, I think, to me right now is how it impacts the immune system. Uh, if you do one session of forest bathing for even 20 minutes, we see an increase in what's called the NK cells or the natural killer cells. And these are the cells that protect us from viruses and even from tumor formations. Is it just the healing power of nature or is there something else going on? You know, like what about being in nature is so good for us? There's many levels to it. I don't claim to understand them all. Trees emit something called phytoncides, and these are organic compounds that are released by trees to protect the trees themselves from parasites, disease, and they're actually beneficial for human health as well. So when we're around trees and we're around plant life, we're breathing those in. You know, I work with chi or energy, which is a little more abstract, but I think of each tree and each plant as being a unique life form with its own consciousness and I think when we expose ourselves to a variety of different life forms it benefits us and I like to think it benefits trees as well so I think it's a friendship. What do people report to you like what do they say afterwards? Lots of times. Does anybody hate it? <laughs> no, I've never had anyone hate it or being unsatisfied. People usually feel more relaxed, more present. Um, and really, when you start to talk to people, you realize that they're processing some heavy stuff that they're going through in their lives. Um, and it helps them with that. And people report feeling overall better is the general feeling you get. I feel great. People are chatty, which is always a good sign. After a healing session or after a group event, when people feel chatty, it means the energy is flowing. It means they're feeling uplifted and feeling open to sharing and receiving. I'm glad I didn't cancel. <laughs> Me too. Yeah, this is great. You can feel the benefits almost immediately. Um, and then notice how they last, how they last with you. Uh, lots of times I'll feel them wearing off, and that's when I'll get myself back to the park, back to the forest. Once you learn how to forest bathe, you can do it anytime. Uh, you don't need a guide, although it's more fun when you come do it with, with a group. And uh, But you can do it yourself once you know how to do it. So it's, it's like that saying, you know, give a person a fish, they eat for a day, teach them how to fish, and they can eat forever. Uh, I think forest bathing is so essential to modern life and creating a balance and health in the modern environment. Later in the show, we revisit a story about the bus on a rock at the confluence of the New and Gali rivers and meet Bruiser Cole, the man who put it there. It's rough when he wants to be, <laughs> but he'll tell you the truth. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams.
Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, offering 31 bachelor-level degrees and six master-level degrees for students of any age. More information at concord.edu. I don't know the whole story, but I overheard some. I know he's who I got my drinking from. The White House recently announced nearly $10 million in funding for the Appalachia High-Intensity Drug Trafficking Areas Program. West Virginia Public Broadcasting's Emily Rice has more. High-Intensity Drug Trafficking Areas, or HIDTA, programs support law enforcement agencies operating in areas determined to be critical drug trafficking regions of the U.S. Chad Napier is the state's HIDTA coordinator. West Virginia leads the nation in the drug overdose death rate. We're always trying to allocate for more funding just to address those issues. And so the $10 million is split out amongst those initiatives, and they mainly fund overtime for uh, narcotics investigators, full-time narcotics investigators that are co-located within initiatives. The Appalachia HIDTA is made up of 51 initiatives throughout four states. There are 15 initiatives in West Virginia. For Appalachia Health News, I'm Emily Rice in Charleston. Appalachia Health News is a project of West Virginia Public Broadcasting with support from Charleston Area Medical Center and Marshall Health. One of the hardest parts of caring for aging parents is deciding when they need professional care. Whether that's in-home services, assisted living, or something else, families have to consider what's best for their loved ones and how to pay for it. WVPB's Eric Douglas spoke with Chris Braley, the owner of an assisted living and memory care facility in West Virginia. How do I, as a caregiver, make the decision it's time for mom or dad or, or you know, my loved family member to go into a facility? Yeah, that's the million-dollar question, you know. Um, I, I have a lot of families that will have come to me over the years, and, and they've asked, you know, when is it time? Um, and I think it's really an individual, uh, you know, account, based, you know, person-to-person you know, -person, uh, situation. What I counsel families on is looking at, What's the safety issues there? Um, when you get to that point w with an aging parent or spouse, uh, you know what, what kind of safety issues are you dealing with? Are they are they ambulatory? If they are, um, are they forgetting where they are in their home and not recognizing that? And are they trying to get out and in their mind going to their home maybe from their childhood, uh, which you know in the field we call that an elopement risk. Hmm. Um, and that obviously can be a, a very serious safety issue. Also, I think, um, you know, looking at are they, when they get a little more confused, when they get frustrated, uh, are they becoming aggressive? And, you know, how are they handling the behavioral strategy that the caregiver is, is trying, you know, to de-escalate the situation? You know, are they getting physical? Um, you know, there's, there can be you know, phys physical issues, there can be emotional issues to that, um, and that becomes very challenging, especially for an aging caregiver. Um, you know, st statistically, that you know, it, it, the, the, the caregiver that is pro providing the care for the one with dementia um, can have a higher risk of mortality. I've heard it said it's easier for somebody to go into a nursing facility out of a hospital rather than just calling up and saying, you know, than, than a family member calling and trying to get, get mom or dad in a, in a facility. Right. right. Um, explain that process for me a little bit if you can. Well, typically, so if you have someone in the hospital, then there's been a crisis. There's been a, a situation that occurred, whether it was due to their dementia and maybe they became a little more aggressive and they had to go to the hospital to have behavioral health, work with them and adjust medications, or perhaps they, they fell, they harmed themselves, and they're in the hospital, you know, recovering from that. So that crisis kind of allows it a little bit easier to be, for them to be able to transition from a hospital into whether it's a nursing home for maybe rehab services or into assisted living because the family has realized it's it's probably time for long-term care. Um, so, you know, that can be a little easier than on the flip side where they're at home um, and maybe there's not a crisis, but the family sees what's coming and they want to try to um, deal with it. Before take, the crisis. Exactly. Happens. Be proactive. Um, 
but the the one with dementia is going to probably struggle a little more with that. And and also, I think when you're when a family is not in crisis in that moment, that guilt yeah. just hammers so much more. Um, and 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 that that's a whole other aspect in dealing with the talking about the grief that families go through in, in this whole process. How does a family, uh, I mean, do you, do you just make a phone call? Do you start making a whole bunch of phone calls? Where, where do you start? Yeah, and I, that's a great question. And I think, you know, the, you want to be as proactive as possible. And so family, it's best to start looking before you have to do it. Um, and start and touring other you know facilities, whether it's a nursing home or assisted living, based on what you're able to do, um, and and start asking the questions and um, you know really holding those facilities, long-term care facilities, you know, as if you know you're interviewing them mm-hmm. and 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 taking tours and finding out how they did in their surveys with OFLAC and things of that nature, so you can make the best informed decision you can for your loved one. Um, also looking into, you know, can they, what the in-home uh, services are available to do. Uh, as I mentioned before, if a lot of, there's a lot of veterans that don't realize mm. there are mm. resources for them. Sure. Um, and so kind of tapping into that and seeing what, what can be done. That was Chris Braley speaking with Eric Douglas about nursing homes and care for aging parents. To read a longer version of this interview... Or for the other stories in our series, Getting Into Their Reality, Caring for Aging Parents, visit our website at wvpublic.org. According to the federal government's most recent count, 40% of unhoused people live on the street, unsheltered. That's the highest percentage ever. In some cities, people have gathered at outdoor encampments that have become targets. That's been the case in Charleston, West Virginia, where state lawmakers have debated how to respond. Barbara DiPietro is Director of Policy for the National Healthcare for the Homeless Council. She says our current approach to homelessness only exacerbates underlying issues. In the latest episode of the S&M podcast, host Trey Kay spoke with DiPietro. Here's an excerpt. The cost of housing continues to rise across the country, and sustainable policies for housing homeless people are in dispute. It's no surprise that more people are living on the streets. And that's obviously very concerning. So what are we doing as communities, though? We're sending in the police. Break up that encampment. You can't be there. This is public space. You've taken over this park. Back in 2016, Charleston's then mayor, Danny Jones, held a press conference announcing his decision to clear out a homeless encampment. At 2 o'clock, our... Personnel, uniformed, uh, and our public works department and all sorts of social services agencies are descending on Tent City to dismantle it. The so-called Tent City was an encampment on private property with an estimated 20 to 30 residents. These are folks that don't want to obey any rules, and they also want to drink. And they want to drink, uh, they want the ability to drink around the clock. And we, uh, that's their business. They just can't do it there. And there's been all Cities across the country use a range of strategies to empty homeless encampments. But DePetra argues clearing them out is counterproductive and expensive. In forcibly removing folks and throwing away all other stuff, how have we actually solved anything and only just recreated the same problem, only now... Our guy doesn't have a tent, doesn't have a blanket, doesn't have anything to his name, doesn't even have an ID because you threw it away. There's millions of dollars that go into replacing those IDs, replacing that medication that municipal authorities threw away. In fact, just a year after Charleston's tent city was cleared, the city settled a lawsuit that included $20,000 for reimbursement of personal items lost in the raid. And you're just forcing your guy to go somewhere else. So now maybe behind the Walmart or maybe further out in the woods. But nowhere did we provide any solution to the problem at hand. And that's that these folks have nowhere to go. DePietro says there are successful supportive programs that combine affordable housing with social services. These can include a nurse, therapist, social worker, and psychiatrist to help monitor health conditions and medications. And she says those examples are not a new model. 
how do we support seniors in this country? For years and years, we were talking about home and community-based services, keeping grandmom out of the nursing home by putting a ramp at her house, putting grab bars in, maybe put some things into the bathroom and the kitchen to help our elderly people stay in their houses longer and be safe. And I think that if we adopt the same approach, and, and we are in many communities, just not at the scale that we need to be doing, um, that's a winning model, also one that has a lot of evidence base behind it as not just cost effective for, for public expenditures, but also yields better outcomes for the people that you're serving. But it's, it's happening at a fraction of the rate that it needs to happen. And the result is an expensive cycle of mental health and medical care, and in some cases, incarceration. If you believe that human beings deserve housing, if you believe that human beings deserve health care, how is it that we don't mirror our public policies to honor that? So when we think about people living on the street who have significant health conditions, where is the humanity in ignoring that? Where is the humanity in letting him die when if you put him in a house and give him a case manager and a nurse, he can thrive? That's an excerpt from the latest S&M episode called Compassion Fatigue. You can listen online at wvpublic.org or find the S&M podcast wherever you listen to Inside Appalachia. S&M is supported by the West Virginia Humanities Council and the CRC Foundation. If you listen to the popular podcast, Death, Sex, and Money, you know Anna Sale. Back in 2005, Anna was a reporter for West Virginia Public Broadcasting. She got curious about an old bus that sits at a rock at the confluence of the New and Golly Rivers, just past the town of Golly Bridge. In 2005, Anna traveled by boat with producer Russ Barber to meet the man behind the mystery. in the middle of a river might be controversial in some communities, but Randy Kais says it's a sacred spot in Golly Bridge. There's people all over this country stops there, you know, and takes pictures of it. Everybody's, everybody's wondering how in the world you got it out here, you know, how, how do you get the thing up on that rock, you know. It's a, it's a landmark, you know, it's a landmark. Rumors swirl in Fayette County about just how the bus landed there. Some say a band of college kids pulled it up on the rocks in the 1960s. Others claim the bus was washed out to the middle of the river during a flood. The truth is that it was the work of one man, Bruiser Cole, who was in search of the perfect fishing camp. And as fabled as his camp has become, Cole's given it a simple name. Bus on a rock. Cole has lived all of his 81 years in Golly Bridge. His home is in a nearby hollow along Scrabble Creek. But it's his fishing camp that has been his labor of love for 51 years. He claimed the island for himself in 1954 by hoisting a bus up onto a rock outcropping in the middle of the New River. Cole bought the bus and had it barged nine miles downriver. Then he pulled it up onto the rocks. To hear him tell it, it was an easy process. I read it down the river nine miles. And uh, when I come over here, I had a pair of the boat, and he caught it over there and picked it up for me, tied it. Then I took a barge up there, it sat over for a month or two, and, and it, I went up there above the port, that old flat rock, and that's where I loaded this old bus up. I bought this bus off of Otis Morton up there. Okay, this is an old Greyhound bus. And it also made perfect sense. Well, I thought I'd make a camp out of it. That's what I got for. Mm -hmm. And then to make a camp, how did you decide to make it with a bus? Well, it's quick and easy after you get over here. It's already built. He took the wheels off the bus, rested it on the rocks, and built a foundation around it. He added the front porch using wood from an old CNO depot years later. The reason he likes his camp is simple. Get away from people. Why do you want to get away from people? You know how people are. 
The rivers surrounding Gully Bridge provide the perfect buffer for seclusion. If you ain't got a boat, you can't get across the river. Unless you swim. He points out that there are no roads except the railroad across the river from town. Everything used to build the fishing camps on his side of the river was boated across. His boat is an oak wood John boat that he made with his own hands. I just learned to make them just from all everybody around, you know, worked on stuff. A bunch of them made John boats, they didn't make them like these. You have to fit everything on these when you make them. They're good boats. He and his half-brother Tom build them, a skill passed on by their father. Instead of John boats, some in Golly Bridge call them coal boats. Oh, it takes you three or four days to paint it and build it and everything. So you, you've made boats for yourself and then sometimes you've sold them? No, I never did sell them. <clears throat> I may help people make some. To make a living, he did a variety of things. Mined coal, hauled coal, and served as deputy sheriff in Fayette County. He even drove a school bus. Randy Kice rode on Cole's bus as a boy. I'd go to get on the first day of school, you know. He'd say, guys, I've got a sign seat for you right here behind me. <laughs> I know him pretty well. And uh, I'd sit there all year. I'd look four years over there on that hill, and I was right behind him. He said, I want to see your smiling face. <laughs> the old bruiser, he... He's something else. Cole has spent all of his life swimming, fishing, or sitting on the porch watching the river float by. But as with most things, he doesn't wax poetic about the river. All rivers are just important to communities. See, it's Gully here, and the new river forms Kanoa here. But the history of Gully Bridge is all about the river. Even the name of the town suggests this, linking the name of the river with a human invention. Cole says this goes back to the area's Native American past. Yeah, they say all the time the old Indians called New River the River of Death. One thing about the river, you gotta respect it. people came to this part of the world, the rivers were the interstate highways. When the NPR senior correspondent, Noah Adams, followed the New River North for his book, Far Appalachia, it elicited memories of the region's pioneer past. I tried to think of what it would, what it would have been like for, for my forebears to come there and, and, and how, how much more courageous they were, actually, than any of us could be now. It's just an entirely different existence. Just to go down that river for the first time, going west and not knowing what you would come up against. Opportunities and the dangers, you know, it's a pretty intimidating thing. Like Adam's family, Cole's family came to the mountains looking for a place to call their own. Let's face it, these are places where, where, where our people wanted to come to. The Scots-Irish, my folks came to Philadelphia and they didn't even stop for lunch. You know, they got off the boat and they said, let's, let's find the mountains. And they, and they wanted to be away from those cities. Oh, this was all Virginia when my people came in here. They watched as the Civil War came to Golly Bridge and saw the strategic importance of the river. In 1861, the town's namesake was burned and destroyed as Confederates retreated. Randy Kais knows the story well as a native. Yeah, I used to be a uh, a covered bridge over here, you know, they used to, I don't know if it was the Union or what, you know, you shoot off this side here and, and blow it out, you know. About every time they would build it back, they'd blow it out. You know, Gully Bridge is full of history, yeah, really. And uh, people find cannonballs, you know, there's cannonballs all in the river there. Now, Cole's camp has become a part of Gully Bridge's history. 
1954 is when he put it up here. Figure over 50 years old, you know, 50 years on that rock. It's older than me, you know. From his perch on the porch, Cole has watched the river mark the passage of time. He's seen the town of Golly Bridge change. Well, it's built up some all along, over a period of years. And they took this highway and everything down to here, the bridge in over here somewhere. It's uh, been incorporated for 20-some years now. And the river's flow has changed under his watch after the Summersville Dam was completed in 1966. And in the 1980s, Craigsville native Bernard Coffendaffer approached Cole about putting a set of his famous three crosses on a nearby rock. Oh, he come and asked me about it. I told him it didn't belong to me. Cole helped Coffendaffer pull up a 550-pound steel base for each cross. I think that this, um, that you see here, will last, will last 100 years. And the camp itself is made from the relics of history. This is all used to. <clears throat> and you figured out how to do it all yourself? Well, I managed. The seats on the front porch are an old booth from a Kentucky Fried Chicken. A shed from an old Methodist churchyard sits beside the island's outhouse. A satellite dish shields a wood-burning heater from the wind. And when something comes floating down the river, Cole will grab it if it's useful. Pull it up on the bank, tear it up, and use it. That thing going on down the river. It is usable. That's what's all the stuff now. People throw everything away. That's not to say the camp doesn't have amenities. Cole strung an electrical line to the bus himself in 1957, which powers the camp's electric oven and two refrigerators. There's also running water that's pumped right out of the river. Yeah, I'll throw it out the river. Not even cigarette, but that's what you're drinking. Everything goes in the river. Always on mines and timber stuff, everything goes in the drinking water. That's what you're drinking. Drinking your own filth already. But some high-ranking officials once claimed that Cole's camp itself was filth. In the mid-1970s, a. James Manchin was on a statewide mission to clean up West Virginia through the REAP program. REAP comes to Kanoa Falls to rebuke, to rebel, because we are repulsed with these rustic relics of repugnancy. Manchin set his sights on getting Cole's bus out of the middle of the river. But Cole had another idea. James, all right, I know he did good, but uh, he didn't call no problem. Just thought he was. Did he Did he want you to get rid of, take the bus off the rock? No, he didn't say a whole lot about it. Uh, Charlie Keenan was the mayor over here at the time, and Charlie talked to him. My wife, she called Archmore town. Never heard no more about it. Danny Kincaid, a friend of Cole's, thinks there's more to the story. Your brooder could tell you a whole lot more about it than I could. He knows a lot, but he won't tell you everything. <laughs> In fact, the town legend goes that when Manchin was making noise about the camp, Cole reminded him that he didn't get the nickname Bruiser by going to Sunday school. Rough when he wants to be. <laughs> but he'll tell you the truth. Good person. I like the like world of him. Cole may be mellowing with age. He stays busy and has plans for a list of improvements to the camp. But he knows he won't be around to care for it forever. He secured a deed for the Rock Island in 2004 and says he has it willed to someone. Kincaid says whoever gets the camp after Cole is gone will be the luckiest person on the river. It's just the best camp here on the river, by far the best. Good location, good fishing around. You can see everything. <laughs> like the pioneers before him, Cole struck out to make a home where no one had before. He did it all by the sweat of his own brow and is now reaping the benefits. How much time do you think you spent working on this place? Lots, lots, lots. 
Has it been worth it? Oh, I guess. There's no place like it in the world. You got that right. For Outlook, I'm Anna Sale in Golly Bridge. That story originally aired in 2005 on a West Virginia public broadcasting TV show called Outlook. Bruiser Cole passed away in 2012, but his bus on a rock is still standing. Here at Inside Appalachia, we love roadside attractions, and we love a good mystery. We appreciate that Anna Sale's story wrapped in both. Is there a local roadside mystery in your neck of the woods? If so, drop us a line. Who knows, we might want to feature it in a future story. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Kaya Cater, Jeff Ellis, Eric Vincent, Eck Robertson, Chris Knight, and Tyler Childers. Bill Lynch is our producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter, at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at WVPublic.org. Visit WVPublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, educating the people of our region and beyond for more than 150 years. More information at concord.edu.